Hello, and welcome to the Asimov Cast, short bursts of joy, thoughtfulness, and inspiration from the works of Isaac Asimov. I'm Lozzie. Follow the show on Twitter, Blue Sky, and Instagram at AsimovCast, or email to asimovcast at gmail.com. This week, we're covering our final story in The Complete Robot, The Bicentennial Man. The Bicentennial Man is a novelette, first published in February 1976. The Bicentennial Man was awarded the Hugo Award for Best Science Fiction Novelette of 1976. It was also awarded the Nebula Award for Best Science Fiction Novelette, after Ursula K. Le Guin refused the award for her entry, The Diary of the Rose, in protest of the science fiction writers of America's political intolerance in revoking Stanislav Lem's membership. Andrew Martin is sat behind a desk talking to a robot surgeon about a procedure. The robot would conduct the procedure perfectly, but is concerned this procedure is inherently damaging. His oaths as a doctor and the three laws as a robot means he must not inflict damage on Andrew Martin. But Andrew Martin is not a human. He is a robot. When Andrew was first commissioned as NDR, he forgets the numbers. He was placed in a household, a rarity on earth with four people, Sir, Ma'am, Miss and Little Miss. He was initially designed to be a butler, valet and maid, but oftentimes would end up being ordered to play by Miss and Little Miss. He starts learning to carve wood under orders to make a toy and does a wonderful job, ending up designing and making cabinets and desks. Never the same each time and seemingly genuinely creative. Sir, or Gerald Martin, is a member of the regional legislature, which is why he qualified as a robot owner, and takes Andrew into US robotics and mechanical men to see the chief robopsychologist, Merton Mansky. Mansky is surprised by the creativity of Andrew and would be keen to study and replace him, but Gerald will have none of it and takes Andrew home. Little Miss, no longer that little, starts encouraging Gerald to sell some of Andrew's carvings, not just for themselves, but for Andrew too. Selling these is making them rich, over $200,000 and half of it in Andrew's name. Gerald wants to know, though, if this is legal, and brings in John Feingold to set up a trust and insulate Andrew from the legality of the question. Over time, Andrew needs repairing and upgrading with every possible new feature, Features that Andrew pays for himself, but his positronic pathways remain the same, and Gerald insists on this, knowing the more modern robots are more precise in what they do, but do not have the variety and creativity of Andrew. US Robotics had asked nine times to return Andrew, so they could study him, but Gerald always refused. Now he's getting older, Ma'am joined an art colony in Europe, Miss is a poet in New York. Little Miss is married, but lives nearby, and when she has a son, Little Sir, she gets Andrew to hold the bottle for him. At this point, with Sir having a grandchild, Andrew asks to give him all his money, all $600,000 of it. Andrew wants to buy his freedom. Gerald is instinctively against this and has to be talked around by Little Miss. Her and Andrew have been discussing this for years. He's been avoiding raising it because of the fear it would hurt Gerald. 
but it was Little Miss who pushed him to do it. Gerald thinks that Andrew doesn't even know what freedom is, but Little Miss points out that Andrew has read entire libraries, and while she doesn't know how he feels inside, she doesn't know how her dad does either. Gerald angrily says he can only free Andrew legally through the courts. There's a very high chance that not only would the court find against Andrew, it would take it official cognizant of his money. Is this worth all of that? Andrew responds that freedom is without price, and even the chance of freedom is worth the money. The cake goes to court, and the other side is clear and methodical. The word freedom does not apply to a robot. Only a human can be free. Little Miss, full name Amanda Laura Martin Charney, addresses the court on Andrew's behalf, saying he's been functionally free for at least 20 years, as this was the last time anyone gave him an order they thought he wouldn't do on his own accord. The judge is indulgent, but cannot lightly run counter to the assumption that only a human can be free. He addresses Andrew on the matter, what difference does freedom make? What could he do that he does not now, if recognised as free? Andrew responds, Perhaps no more than I do now, Your Honour, but with greater joy. It has been said in this courtroom that only a human being can be free. It seems to me that only someone who wishes for freedom can be free. I wish for freedom. And it is this that sways the judge. Gerald is still displeased, but accepts the verdict and the responsibility for Andrew, which is part of the court order. He gives Andrew one last order that he does as he pleases. Andrew continues his friendship with Little Miss and with her son, who insists Andrew call him George. Finally, as Gerald ages and lays dying, he calls Andrew in for a rapprochement. He is glad that Andrew is free, and just wanted to tell him that. After Gerald's death, Andrew starts to wear clothes. He feels different now. George, now a lawyer with Feingold's firm, questions him on this. There are millions of other robots on Earth now, and none of them wear clothes. Slowly but surely, in the tiniest of steps, Andrew starts adding to his wardrobe. His conversations with George become more informal, and Andrew realises he doesn't understand colloquial and evolving language, and sets out to the library to find out, leaving a note. On his way, he walks past two humans, who start to order him around. They push him to take his clothes off, to stand on his head, maybe to take himself apart, before fortunately George turns up. George is able to prey on the men's fears and using precise formulation of orders avoiding first law conflicts, manages to use Andrew to scare them off. He asks Andrew why he wants to go to the library. Andrew wants to learn more about everything, and he wants to write a history of robotics from the perspective of a robot. Little Miss is appalled by the events and pushes George to intervene legally. The money Andrew made is the foundation of what they have, and they owe him. They discuss creating a test case on this. Given any human can have or can use orders in the second law to supersede a robot's self-preservation from the third law, Anyone could order a robot to damage itself for no reason. This would be unthinking and illegal against animals, so why should it be applicable against robots? If robots have three laws to protect humans, is it too much to have a law or two to protect robots? It's this court of public opinion and appeal to humanity that creates the conditions to make robot-harming orders illegal. 
Little Miss holds on to life just enough to see this victory through, and saves her last smile for Andrew. Andrew continues to write his book and wants to arrange a meeting with the head of US Robotics. They've been dodging his calls. If robots get rights, people won't want to buy them. Andrew can't lie or threaten them, but he can encourage his friends at Fine Gold and Charney to do so. Eventually, he's able to meet the CEO and a descendant of the original founder, Hardly Smythe Robertson. Andrew reflects on the changes in the robots that are manufactured now. They're much more precise, but far more limited in what they're capable of achieving. They're designed for a lifespan of 25 years only, and then they are called in and replaced. Andrew wants replacements too, not to his brain, but to a replacement of his body. He wants an Android-like body with synthetic skin and tendons looking human. US Robotics does not manufacture androids as part of their policies, but it is not illegal, and they do know how to. Paul, Andrew's friend and little Mrs. grandson, badgers, wheels, and basically blackmails US Robotics into doing this. With his new body, Andrew is inspired to try a third career, first artist, then historian, now robobiologist. He sets up his own lab and starts his studies of how a body interacts with a positronic brain. At the same time, US Robotics is changing its approach. No longer will it build autonomous robots, merely massive machines that communicate with their robot appendages by microwave. Purely as a backlash to what Andrew has achieved and forced on them, they never again wish a robot to have that leverage over them. Meanwhile, Andrew has started designing systems that will allow robots to gain energy from the combustion of hydrocarbons, which is to say, to eat and to breathe. Over the next couple of decades, and after the last of Gerald Martin's extended family have passed on, Andrew had made his internal combustion chamber work. Supported by the fine gold and charney law firm, Andrew went to visit US Robotics once more. It was now off-planet, with Earth's one billion population stable, and only 30% of its similar-sized robot population independent from the central mines. The current director of research is far more open and welcoming to Andrew than Robertson Smythe was before. Andrew wishes him to manufacture the prosthetic stomach. Again, US robotics have concerns and worries, and as before, Andrew manipulates and pressures them. The prosthetic would be very lucrative to sell to humans, and if US robotics won't manufacture and license the patents from Andrew, he'll set up a competitor company and squeeze them out of business. Andrew thinks to himself that he's barely feeling any first law inhibitions from this. The prosthetics based on Andrew's patents and designs are marketed in his name and are wildly successful. Andrew is not finished though. If he can consume, it makes sense to excrete to add an anus and genitalia. He continues to change his body to become more like a man. When US Robotics host a dinner in his honour for his 150th year, he finds himself uncomfortable to be described as the sesquicentennial robot. Andrew then spends time off Earth on the moon. The prosthetics he's designed need to be adapted for lunar gravity. He returns to Earth and to find Golden Chani frustrated. On the moon, he was in charge of 20 human scientists, being deferred to as if he were human. He is de facto human. It is not enough for Andrew, who wants to be de jure human, legally identified as one. 
This would require an act of the world legislature to change. Andrew wants Feingold and Charney to arrange meetings and to back him to the hilt. After all, they have benefited substantially from Andrew's contributions over the previous 173 years. Simon DeLong, the current head of the firm, says he'll see what he can do. A meeting is arranged with Chi Li Hsing, the chairman of the Science and Technology Committee of the East Asian region. She is sympathetic. After all, many parts of human populations have had to fight for full human rights. Andrew wants the right to life. A robot can be dismantled at any time without due process. Andrew wants to be a man. Chi is concerned that Congress will not want to establish this president and will inhibit Andrew's case and in fact could lead to someone potentially ordering his dismantling. She warns him of the likely viciousness of the campaign against him and that, while she is on his side, if it seems to threaten her political future, she will not stick with him, as it's not something she feels strongly about. Feingold and Charney take some indirect routes to this fight, introducing a case that denies the obligation to pay a debt if you have a prosthetic heart, as surely a robotic heart removes humanity. They lose at every step in a broad manner, but their final loss is a victory. They have established that no number of prosthetics in a human body cause it to not be human, and they have got public opinion on side of a very broad interpretation of humanity. The argument takes years and a lot of money, but edges towards a conclusion. The next step is more of a gamble, pushing the World Congress and public opinion first and foremost to accept Andrew. They push and push and gain more sympathy, but it is not sufficient. There is still a majority that thinks it is not the level of thought that matters, but the construction of the brain, and the vote is imminent. We return to where the story started. Andrew requests the surgery from a robot doctor. He informs them that he's not a robot, which weakens the doctor's first law of programming, and then firmly orders, as someone who seems so human, that the operation commence. This is sufficient second law imperative to override, override first law concerns. Andrew feels weak after the operation, but is sure this is imaginary. He didn't tell Lee Singh or Feingold and Chani for fear they would stop him. His analysis is that the root cause of concern is his seeming immortality. Humans can accept immortal robots, they are just machines after all. What they can't accept is immortal humans. The operation has introduced a degradation in his positronic pathways. Despite the third law restrictions, Andreas has accepted the death of his body rather than the death of his goals, dreams and aspirations. He will live to 200. No more. The act of sacrifice and mortality inspires and changes the mood. The World Congress and President approve and, on the 200th anniversary of his manufacture, Andrew is proclaimed no longer a sesquicentennial robot, but now a bicentennial man. As he degrades and dies in his bed, he reflects that he is a man and wishes this to be his last thought. But as he fades away, one last whisper emerges. Little Miss. Things that inspired me, or made me think. Initially, there's a wonderful quote from Andrew in court about freedom and joy. Uh, Perhaps no more than I do now, Your Honour, but with greater joy. It has been said in this courtroom that only a human being can be free. It seems to me that only someone who wishes for freedom can be free. I wish for freedom, 
And I think that uh, this is very much reflection on my views for this podcast and my approach to life, which is wishing for joy and wishing for freedom are fundamental goods in humanity. Um, I think it's interesting to see how Andrew's reactions to first and second law inhibitions alter through the story. Uh, as he becomes more of a man, he feels significantly less inhibition uh, by the first and second law in terms of what he can and can't do. I think it's interesting to see there's a, a repetitiveness within the story in terms of the way the challenges are set up, the way that they are often overcome, the way that they are setting legal test cases. I think there's manipulation of law and of the court of public opinion as analogous uh, to manipulation of the three laws uh, that we've seen across all of the stories in this book. Uh, I think finally there's an acceptance of other and what it means to be human. Uh, I think Andrew's desire to be human, desire to be part of the collective, or at least, if nothing else, to be treated as part of the collective legally is what matters. He will never be the same as the others. He is ultimately artificial, but he has to go to such incredible lengths to be allowed to be described as human to the point that he effectively has to create something where he dies. He has to be zero threat. Um, and I reflect on that in terms of uh, modern times and what uh, certain people are seen as, whether it be uh, race relations, whether it be uh, trans rights, uh, in terms of how mainstream society de defines humanity and how it excludes certain people from it. And the um, incredible and unfair and unjust efforts that Andrew has to go to um, in order to be considered human. I think uh, one part of the story talks about what he's created for humanity in terms of his uh, designs and patterns around prosthetics that um, effectively replace uh, gastroenterological systems, that replace livers, that replace um, huge parts of, of human beings, uh, allowing them to extend their life, but that this is not enough um, for the wild, wild uh, for the whole world to accept him, um, because he's dares to demand to be more. Um, I think it's a fantastic story. It really is. Um, it's the capper of the of the um, of the book. It's the longest story in the book. Uh, obviously, it won a couple of awards, albeit one with a slight asterisk against it. Um, but it's a very engaging story and well worth um, seeking out and reading, I would say. Um, I'd reflect on the whole of The Complete Robot as well. I think that um, when I started, there was a lot of, I had a lot of energy going into the podcast and a lot of energy going into reading through the stories, doing two a week. Um, as the stories became longer, um, that became harder to sustain. Um, I found the Susan Calvin stories really, really tough to uh, reckon with. Uh, fundamentally, 
they show up the inherent sexism of a lot of Asimov's writing. Not that it's overtly, but that it's, I would say, patriarchically sexist. Um, Susan Calvin is the only female character in almost every single one of those stories and is forced to carry the burden of A, being the smartest character, but B, not being able to be liked as a result of it. And um, almost all of the stories in this book suffer from, I would say, lack of imagination from Asimov in terms of the gender of his characters. And this is reflected in the way he genders the robots as well. I would say that the Bicentennial Man starts to do a better job. I think it's notable that it was written in 1976 rather than in the 40s or 50s. I think you can see the evolution of Asimov's writing in that, but it doesn't change the fact that I find the the Susan Calvin books uh, stories frustrating to read and frustrating to um, to reflect on. Even if I like some of the um, mysteries and some of the way that worked out. Overall, across the whole book, I think what I love is the way that Asimov plays with the three laws. I love that having set them up, he immediately finds all the flaws and holes in them, that he immediately looks for the loopholes, he immediately looks for the conflicts, he immediately looks for the ways that they don't work, um, which I think goes to... uh, talk about laws in general that if you write laws particularly ones that seem so simple and neat on the surface you will find that they are hopelessly flawed in many ways because of the subtleties that they don't cater for Um, and the importance to consider the emotion and the humanity and the spirit of the laws uh, rather than a pure adherence to letter Um, but all in all, you know, what a what a great set of short stories, what a wonderful creative scientific and science fiction mind. Uh, where I found joy, a couple of small notes, there's some great futuristic clothes descriptions. He talks about makeup on men and women, he talks about transparent garments obscuring only what the user wants through dazzle. Um, uh, I, I again love the as i i've started calling it the don't tell me not to reference my songs within my songs so we see mentions of machines we see mentions of regions we see overlap with a number of other um stories that um that we've seen throughout this book uh resonating if not explicitly called out uh in this story susan calvin is name checked very briefly as well uh and um yeah I think I would say the analysis or the introspection on what it means to be human and the um, way that Andrew has to bring humanity on side and the unfairness and the slog and toil uh, and the lack of appreciation for anything that he's done nothing other, nothing more than scraping inch by inch to to make progress um it, it does make this story i think uh, the best in the in the book and and the one that i found most interesting and most to reflect on
And thank you for joining me. You can find me at Lozymantius on Blue Sky. You can find the podcast on Blue Sky, Twitter and Instagram at Asimovcast. The theme music is courtesy of Alexei Chistilin from Pixabay. Please email your thoughts, what inspires you and where you find joy in Asimov to Asimovcast at gmail.com. I also do a horny chaotic podcast about the horny chaotic HBO show True Blood. Check out Fangbangers Podcast with a Z. This was the final story in The Complete Robot and brings to a close Season 1 of this pod. Over the next couple of months I'll put out a couple of bonus episodes with some friends. One covering thoughts on robots and AI and another with a focus on the Apple Plus TV adaptation of Foundation. I'll be back then later in the year with the stories covered so far in the Foundation show. Go now. Do not harm humanity or by inaction allow humanity to come to harm.